You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. In the 1800s, women born to affluent families in the religious Deep South had their lives practically planned out for them at birth. They would learn to be quiet, demure, and charming. They would grow up in boarding schools where they learned needlework, studied Bible verses, and were groomed for marriage. After becoming a suitable bride, they were expected to give their husbands heirs. Their duties included child-rearing, going to church, and supporting their husband's career. In their later years, they might hope to grow old, surrounded by children and grandchildren, before passing away, with any luck as quietly and gently as they lived. Pearl Hart wanted none of that. Born Pearl Taylor in the Canadian village of Lindsay, Ontario, she originally moved within the strict guidelines expected of her. But at 16, when her parents sent her to boarding school, Pearl met Frederick Hart and decided her predetermined life wasn't for her. Her new beau wasn't exactly the kind of man her family approved of. He tended bar, drank heavily, gambled, and rarely missed an opportunity to sleep with any woman willing. It's unclear what Pearl saw in Frederick, but the two soon eloped. Perhaps she aimed to live an exciting life void of stuffy upper-class rules. She quickly discovered it wasn't the exhilarating lifestyle she'd expected. Despite his promises, Frederick didn't change his ways. He drank most of what he earned, leaving little for her or their two children. He became physically abusive. Pearl left a couple of times, but Frederick wooed her back. Eventually, to keep her children safe from their father, she sent them to live with relatives in Ohio. In 1893, she followed Frederick to Chicago, where he found work at the Chicago World's Fair as a sideshow barker. Pearl also took on a few jobs at the fair. One exhibit fascinated her, and so she spent her free time at the Wild West exhibit, especially whenever Annie Oakley performed. She listened to speeches at the Women's Pavilion promoting equality and women's rights. Through those speeches, Pearl found the courage to leave Frederick. She headed west on a train to Trinidad, Colorado, to start a new life. Pearl found work as a singer at a saloon. Frederick tracked her down and begged her to come back. Disappointed that heroes didn't walk the streets of the real Wild West, she relented. For a short while, Frederick changed. He even found a steady job. But it wasn't long before he went back to his old ways. One night in 1898, he knocked Pearl unconscious and left her. Alone again, Pearl drifted between her parents' home and the West, taking on odd jobs to support herself. Later in 1898, she received a letter from her brother asking for money. Their mother was sick and needed medical attention. She asked a saloon patron by the name of Joe Boot for advice. She needed money and quick. Joe suggested they team up and rob a stagecoach. To disguise her identity, Pearl cut her hair and dressed in Joe's clothing. Their first heist netted $450. They ran, but were soon captured. Pearl played up the role of Lady Bandit. Before long, she was signing autographs. The court was less enamored and sentenced her to five years in prison, where she maintained her celebrity status. A model inmate, she was paroled in 18 months. She faded into the sunset then, though there were rumors of Pearl resurfacing as a shopkeep in Kansas or the wife of an Arizona rancher. 
Pearl became a ghost of the Wild West. But some outlaws, like ghosts, hung around a while longer. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. The Civil War decimated American life and livelihood, leaving many feeling lost. Financial hardships followed, and without the connections that once shared with their communities, people headed west, for better or worse. Most were young men who had served in the military. Former soldiers from both North and South realized there were no winning sides when it came to war. The untamed West offered something they could create of their very own, a fresh start and a place to forget. The government pressed American citizens to colonize the new territories. Plots of land offered at low prices started a scramble to push Native Americans out. The rapid expansion left little time to establish anything but loose laws and enforcement. As you might imagine, crime escalated. U.S. Marshals and the Army became the policing force when nothing else was available. But with so many colonists, the allotted law enforcement barely made a dent. So, in the decades after the Civil War, the government focused on reducing what had essentially become a free-for-all in Western settlements. Territorial governors were appointed. Unfortunately, for most towns, the elected officials were as corrupt as the criminals they sought to arrest. Boom towns, especially ones with profitable mines, led to an increase in gambling saloons and the sex worker industry, which raked in a small fortune for the pimps and madams, but never the workers. Mining towns grew the fastest and became highly prosperous. From pure gold nuggets to ores of all kinds, stories of striking it rich lured more people from the East Coast to places like Butte, Montana for the copper, or the silver-rich Virginia City, Nevada. And wherever there was money to be made, con artists and thieves found plenty of opportunities, too. Bandits robbed stagecoaches and trains, though easy money wasn't without risk. Thieves often found themselves looking down the barrel of a sawed-off shotgun or two. And sure, we've all heard about train and coach robberies, but no one was necessarily safe. Solitary travelers and those on foot in town after dark made easy targets. Most outlaws took refuge in remote passes, the open range, or the badlands. Yet other towns welcomed the men, at first. Most were veterans from the war, putting their violent training to use. But as dangerous as these outlaw towns were, people living in cities back east romanticized them. To urban dwellers, people out west were rebels living in a free society. Poorer classes saw the towns as a united group of other less fortunates, taking what they deserved, what was owed them, from the wealthy. From their point of view, the rich were hoarding money and resources. If a few outlaws robbed the rich, it sounded like fairy tale justice. Robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. Despite the small technicality that few of these outlaws ever spread the wealth, the story of Robin Hood had made the jump across the pond. And thanks to American author and illustrator Howard Pyle, captured the public's imagination. Pyle adapted the English tale for American children. In the original telling, Robin Hood was a thief who was hardly a philanthropist. But in 1819, Sir Walter Scott introduced the character as a kinder thief, set on doing more good than harm. And Pyle tweaked a few things to make the character more of a hero for the common folk. 
the reframing of the legend took root, and Americans thought of Robin Hood as the protector of the weak. Since it wouldn't do for the American desperado to wear tights, the idea of the character and reality of life out west morphed a bit. Tales of icons like Jesse James and Billy the Kid softened over the years. By the 1890s, thanks to Pyle's version, plenty of Wild West outlaws also believed they were modern-day Robin Hoods. They built on the public's love of the idea of the anti-hero, when, in reality, they weren't particularly giving or caring. More often than not, outlaws saw the persona as an opportunity to line their own pockets. And across the Badlands, that was all the justification they needed. Two such outlaws were James and his brother Jesse, who had both served as bushwhackers during the Civil War. Both the Union and Confederate armies employed men to ambush the other side, wearing them down by attrition and guerrilla warfare. Unlike their military counterparts, though, bushwhackers didn't wear uniforms. And while they conducted well-organized raids, they mostly ambushed individuals and raided homes. The goal was to demoralize and destabilize the opponent physically and mentally. Killing, hostage-taking, arson, and torture were common. They were hired to be bands of terrorists, hardly the Good Samaritans James and Jesse made themselves out to be. When the war ended, Jesse and his brother continued these tactics for profit. Though the brothers didn't particularly hide the fact that the members of the James gang were robbers and killers, they played up the romanticism of the Wild West outlaw. Jesse had uncommonly good looks, and both he and his brother were polite to the townsfolk when they weren't robbing them. Together, they held up the Clay County Savings Association in Liberty, Missouri, making off with $60,000. The holdup was bold, the first daylight bank robbery in U.S. history. The brothers killed one person in the heist. They robbed more banks and trains and stagecoaches with increasing frequency. Finally, the local residents had enough. After a botched bank robbery, the townsfolk showed up with shotguns. The original gang disbanded after that. A new formation didn't last long either. The saying that there's no honor among thieves proved true. Member after member turned on the others when caught or to line their pockets with the reward money. In 1881, Jesse moved his family away in an attempt to quit the life of crime. Lured by a handsome reward, a member of the Bob Ford gang successfully hunted Jesse down and killed him. Outlaws lived in a cutthroat world, and men weren't the only ones choosing the lifestyle. Belle Starr came from a wealthy family, and she was well-educated and learned to play the piano. During the war, her family moved to Texas, where they encountered Jesse and James. Belle's brother, Bud, had had something in common with the brothers. He was a Confederate bushwhacker, though he'd been killed in the war. Groomed to be a proper lady, Belle soon married a family friend, Jim Reed, and the couple had three children. Living the life of the average wife wasn't exactly in her cards, though. Belle excelled at riding side saddle and was a great shot with her pair of pistols. Jim didn't mind his wife's rough-around-the-edges attitude. He was involved in a few gangs, including the younger James Bunch. In 1874, Jim was killed, 
leaving Belle's life in turmoil. She eventually married again with a Cherokee man named Sam Starr in 1880. Together, the two orchestrated the stealing and selling of horses and cattle. Belle also made and sold moonshine. All went well for three years, until Bass Reeves, a deputy marshal, arrested them for horse theft. She served nine months in prison, remaining a model prisoner and earning her early release. Tragedy struck again when Frank West, Sam's cousin, shot and killed him. Widowed once more, Belle vowed to never remarry and enjoyed the company of a variety of men. On February 3rd of 1889, someone ambushed Belle as she rode home one night. The killer's first shot knocked her from her horse. The second shot, allegedly with her own shotgun, killed her. But Belle's legend and near-hero status still lives on. Billy the Kid lost both his parents at a relatively young age, forcing him to find ways to support himself. After stealing clothes as a prank, he found himself in jail. Being thin and agile, he escaped through a chimney, making him a fugitive. He worked at ranches and logging camps for a while. Sporting a baby face, Billy was often bullied, until one day he'd had enough and he murdered one of his tormentors. A gang known as the Boys took him under their wing. After another stint in prison and another escape, he formed his own gang called the Rustlers. After a third prison escape that left two guards dead and placed a bounty on his head, Billy's life ended at just 21 years of age in 1881 when a sheriff shot him. Ever the escape artist, some legends state Billy didn't die that night, and his body isn't the one buried at Fort Sumter. Like Belle, Jesse, and James, the legend of Billy the Kid lived on long after his death. Other outlaws also found fame, though it wasn't because of how they lived their life. No, their fame came after their death, and for far less glamorous reasons. Seventeen-year-old Sadie McCurdy refused to name the father of her newborn son. Knowing the family, many speculated that her older, married cousin was the father. In 1880, children born out of wedlock, especially between a married man and a single woman, were a scandal. To save Sadie from the shame, her brother George and his wife Helen offered to raise little Elmer. A tragedy struck in 1890, though, when George died from tuberculosis. Helen, Sadie, and Elmer moved to Bangor, Maine. Though Sadie was back in the picture, the two women agreed that Helen would raise him as her son. Elmer was none the wiser until Sadie couldn't keep the secret any longer. Now a teenager, Elmer didn't take to the news in the way Sadie had hoped. Saddened that his father had abandoned him and his mother hadn't been fully honest or present with him, he took to heavy drinking and troublemaking. Within a couple of years, Elmer moved in with his grandfather, who hired him as an apprentice in his plumbing business. When the economy spiraled downward in 1898, he lost his job and returned home to his mother and aunt. Two years later, Sadie died from a bleeding ulcer. Now 20, Elmer left Maine and wandered the East Coast, taking on odd jobs as a plumber or miner, though his alcoholism made it hard to hold down steady employment. In 1905, he moved to Kansas. After his arrest for public intoxication, he relocated to Missouri and joined the Army in 1907. With minimal training, he was assigned to Fort Leavenworth as part of a demolition team. 
When his service ended, Elmer took a few souvenirs and returned to Kansas, where he reconnected with an old army buddy. But the army missed the chisels, hacksaws, funnels, nitroglycerin, gunpowder, and money sacks, and police were dispatched to arrest Elmer and his friend. The case went to court, where Elmer managed to convince the judge that it had all been a misunderstanding. He and his friend were still in the army, and the supplies were needed to work on a new machine gun innovation. The lie worked, and they were found not guilty. In reality, Elmer and his buddy, along with a few other former enlisted, planned to use the nitro and the gunpowder to rob a Pacific Express train carrying $4,000. In March of 1911, the men hopped aboard the train and planted a nitroglycerin charge in front of the safe. As the men expected, the charge went off, though unexpectedly and spectacularly larger than they had planned. The explosion blew shards of the safe into the train's walls and melted most of the silver they'd sought to steal. The men got away with just $450 in coins. Undeterred, Elmer set his sights on the next heist, a bank. The group broke into the bank in the middle of the night. Again, he used nitro. This time, the explosion blew the door off but didn't dent the safe inside the vault. The explosion woke half the town and the men fled this time with $150 in coins that found in the change trays outside the safe. The group split up after that. Two men hopped a train to the Kansas border. Elmer went to a friend's ranch. He spent most of his days hiding in the haystacks and drinking heavily. On October 4th of 1911, Elmer tried robbing another train, this one supposedly carrying $400,000 in cash slated as a royalty payment to the Osage Nation. Unfortunately for Elmer and his men, they robbed the wrong train. They'd stopped a passenger train instead. They got away with $46, some whiskey, a revolver, a coat, and the conductor's watch. A local paper reported that the men had the dubious honor of pulling off the smallest take in the history of train robbery. Depressed, Elmer returned to his friend's ranch and drank the whiskey. By now, he wasn't doing so well. He had developed tuberculosis and had mild pneumonia and a case of roundworms. Feeling poorly, he stumbled off to sleep in a hayloft. Just before dawn, a posse of three sheriffs and bloodhounds tracked him to the barn. Around 7 a.m., Elmer awoke to the commotion outside. He and the sheriffs exchanged shots until Elmer took a direct hit to the chest, cutting his life short. But it was also the moment where his true journey into fame began. Like most criminals of his day, Elmer's body wasn't claimed by family or friends. Normally, unclaimed cadavers were shipped off to medical schools. Yet, some embalmers had other plans for bodies. Display. The practice was meant to market their services and funeral director Joseph Johnson thought Elmer would make a fine advertisement. He positioned the former outlaw in the funeral home with a gun at his side and a sign that read, The Bandit Who Wouldn't Give Up. Crowds paid five cents to see Elmer's body. As each person passed, they deposited the coins into Elmer's mouth. Carnivals heard about the embalmer's fortune and offered to buy the corpse. Johnson refused to sell. The two men claiming to be Elmer's brothers demanded the funeral home hand over Elmer so that they could properly bury him. In reality, they were carnies looking to make a fast buck. 
Once in possession, they set Elmer up in sideshow tents. His body journeyed with the carnival from town to town. When he no longer brought in money, the brothers sold him to the Traveling Museum of Crime in 1922. For years, his body was sold from one gig to the next and traveled around the country. By 1933, his corpse had deteriorated quite a bit, partially bummifying. A Hollywood crew bought him as promotional material for a film about narcotics and the effects they had on addicts. From time to time, the studio loaned him out. At one point, Elmer was strapped to the top of a car like a Christmas tree. In 1967, he was a prop in a horror movie. The following year, he was sold to the Hollywood Wax Museum, though they decided to store him instead of putting him on display. Two weeks before Christmas, in 1976, the crew of the hit television show The Six Million Dollar Man began filming an episode titled Carnival of Spies Inside a Funhouse. Elmer, thought to be a wax mannequin, was spray-painted glow-in-the-dark orange and hung from a display gallows. But when Elmer's arm snapped off, the cast and crew realized with great horror that the body wasn't made of wax at all. The coroner had difficulty determining whom the body had belonged to. His only clues were a pair of tickets to the Museum of Crime and a penny from 1924. Finally, in 1977, investigators identified Elmer McCurdy. He was laid to rest in Guthrie, Oklahoma, a spectacle to the last. Over 300 people gathered to watch the internment. While he wasn't a great outlaw, McCurdy was laid to rest alongside the corpse of someone who was, Bill Doolin, founder of the Wild Bunch Gang, who had also once been put on display in that funeral director's parlor. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Everyone knows Robin Hood and his rob from the rich and give to the poor routine. But on the other end of the hero spectrum, there are some truly legendary law enforcement officers. Born in Crawford County, Arkansas in 1838, Base Reeves and his parents were enslaved by state legislator William Steele Reeves. In 1846, the family was given to the legislator's son, George, a colonel living in Texas. When the Civil War started in 1861, George sided with the Confederate Army and took 23-year-old Base with him. During a fight over a card game one night, the two got into a brawl. Base fled knowing that as an enslaved black man, he'd pay with his life. He found shelter with local Native Americans who had been forced off their homeland into what was known as Indian Territory, unincorporated independent lands. Base was a fast learner, and they taught him their languages and customs quickly. After the war, he returned to Arkansas a free man. Base took to farming, but after a decade, he grew restless. Then, U.S. Marshal James Fagan made him an offer to return to the territories. The Marshal had heard about the intimidating man with a loud, burly voice who carried a Winchester 44. He had been an incredible sharpshooter, and Fagan thought Bass would excel in law enforcement. He was the first black deputy west of the Mississippi and had reigned to hunt down any outlaw regardless of race, a controversial appointment for a black man at the time. He'd also work alongside the famous hanging judge, Isaac Parker, who presided over the largest criminal court in the country. 
The job description was simple. Bring back outlaws, dead or alive. Base accepted. With a badge on his chest and two Colt pistols at his side, his already imposing figure caught everyone's attention when he rode through a town on his huge white stallion. Base was creative, frequently wearing disguises and creating new identities. Sometimes he portrayed himself as a farmer, a gunslinger, or even an outlaw. His time with the Native Americans had also taught him patience and tracking. Those skills came in handy while hunting down a notorious horse thief. Base deduced which trail the man had used and then hid along the riverbank. Four days later, the wrestler walked right into Base's path. He reached for his gun, but Base fired a warning shot before the man could even draw. During another pursuit, Base and a posse tracked two brothers into the Red River Valley along the Texas border. Thinking that the men had holed themselves up in their mother's cabin, Base came up with a plan. He disguised himself as a beggar, all the while hiding his handcuffs and gun. He knocked on the door and pleaded with the woman who answered for food. Pitying the stranger, she let him in. As he ate, Base told her he was an outlaw down on his luck. Feeling a connection, she told him about her sons and suggested they band together. He agreed. The woman stepped outside and whistled sharply. The two brothers arrived shortly after, and the three men made plans to team up. They offered him room for the night, and Base accepted. Once the men fell asleep, he quietly cuffed the brothers together, without waking them. At dawn, Base marched them at gunpoint to the awaiting posse. For three miles, the mother followed her sons, cursing the man on the white horse the entire time. Later in his career, Base tracked Bill Dozer, a jack-of-all-trades and dangerous man even when it came to outlaws. He was also elusive, having escaped 11 other lawmen. Dozer sent Base a message. Stop tracking him or he'd kill him. Base sent a response. The outlaw was welcome to surrender any time he was ready. Base and another lawman tracked Dozer to the Cherokee Hills. When a storm broke out, the two men sought shelter. Before they found a dry place, gunfire sent them for cover. Base clocked movement in the nearby trees and fired twice. The shots were returned, followed by laughter. Base ordered Dozer to drop his weapon. Dozer answered by raising his rifle. Before he could aim, Base shot him through the neck, killing him. Throughout his 32-year career, Base arrested over 3,000 people and killed 14 outlaws all without ever sustaining a single gunshot wound. Nearly a hundred years later, his heroic actions became the inspiration for a legendary character, the Lone Ranger. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmanMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.